Swift Unwrapped. Before we get started today, we have a sponsor, AWS Amplify. AWS Amplify is a suite of tools and services that enables you to build full stack, serverless, and cloud-based mobile apps. It gives iOS developers tools to build real-world full stack apps using their existing skill set. There's no need to have deep knowledge around backend, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. Amplify handles that for you. You can get quickly set up and running with hosting, authentication, managed GraphQL and REST APIs, service functions, machine learning, and more. Amplify is available free of charge. You only pay for the backend services your application uses above the free tier. You can check it out at awsamplify.info slash iOS. Today, we want to talk about a huge set of proposals and pitches that all came out at once um, from the Swift core team. And of course, we're talking about the Swift concurrency proposals and roadmap uh, that came out in late October. Uh, there's a huge set of these pitches because um, the, the goal here is to sort of lay out a fairly comprehensive picture of where the Kirk, where the concurrency features of Swift should go in the coming few versions. Uh, it's a very concrete plan. Um, Jesse, what do you think about this? Yeah, it's exciting to see this um, coming back. If you remember, um, I mean, it was oh, when years ago at this point, um, I think, Chris Latner wrote a very brief proposal um, on async await. And maybe that also mentioned actors. Um, this was, I don't know, maybe around Swift 3 or something. Um, I'll help you here. I've, yeah. I've pulled it up. So we actually had Chris on the show to talk about this. This was episode 27. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> titled Concurrency with Chris Latner. And, and this was around the same time that uh, uh, the concurrency manifesto was, was starting to take shape. Yeah. So that was a while back when we got the very first sort of glimpse of this feature. And then... You know, other things I think took priority and um, this kind of fell off to the side. Not to mention, I mean, it's like a massive undertaking as everyone can tell now from all of these um, forum posts and documents explaining how all of this is going to work. So yeah, it's really, I think it's interesting to see sort of the progression of this feature over the the past few years. Yeah, and it's been on a lot of people's wish lists um, and the reasons why uh, we can start going over. And these are explicitly outlined in sort of the the, the parent pitch, um, which is uh, a Swift forums post by Ben Cohen outlining the Swift concurrency roadmap and that the handful of and state goals that this outlines. I'll list them here. Um, making asynchronous programming convenient and clear at the point of use. Um, you know, today with a 
callback closure based um, approach to knowing when uh, something is is operating asynchronously, uh, it can be hard to know if the closure that you're passing into the call site is going to be something that's running synchronously or synchronously. Um, at the call site, you don't even see if a closure is marked as escape, escaping or no escape. Uh, you really just see the curly brackets. So this is one, one part where the end state of all of this work would make async programming um, more convenient as in getting rid of, of those pyramids of doom and uh, getting rid of that confusion or um, ambiguity as to whether or not a closure is going to be run asynchronously and, and clear. And they they do this, uh, and, and this isn't outlined in the roadmap, but it's, it's clearly part of the strategy is to add um, async and await keywords that are very popular and used in uh, a lot of other languages, as 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 well as a handful of other um, related keywords, like an equivalent to rethrows for async stuff called reasync. So that's sort of the first big point. Yeah, you know that actually reminds me of another sort of conundrum with the completion handler callback situation. Now is that it, it does rely a lot on. Uh, essentially documentation, like you mentioned, you really don't know at the call site whether something is escaping or not. But another quirk of that is if the closure is optional, it is implicitly escaping. So even if you go look at the declaration, it doesn't say escaping and you have to know that the closure is implicitly escaping because it's wrapped in an optional. And so then it's this whole other layer of like, what is happening? <laughs> right, right. You can't rely on the type system to to help you intuit around the the synchronicity of code. Exactly. Yeah, but this should help with that. Uh, this would help with that because um, you you slap an async on there and uh, you make it clear that um, that function should be doing some async work. Now you can you can have an async. Um, function that doesn't actually do any async work. And this comes in handy in a number of cases, um, similar to how you can have a, a function called uh, annotated with throws that doesn't throw anything. Yeah, so what would be the use of that in mm. this case? Um, so I'm gonna try and get this right. I, I, I read it a while ago in one of these uh, many proposals. Um, the, the idea is that uh, in async contexts where you're making async calls to other things already, it could be easier to compose that with another async call, even if uh, it's not doing any asynchronous work. And I think specifically this was in the context of actors um, that require that the async functions be called um, d directly on or directly from that actor. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I'm getting that the uh, the other way around, but but there are some use cases I think specifically around actors and uh, and their APIs. Right. So what you're saying is, once this feature lands in Swift, we should just mark all of our functions as async. You got it. Uh, <laughs> and there is definitely no extreme that this could go to where uh, things that shouldn't be async end up being async, and then we end up. Uh, exhausting uh, available <laughs> context switching resources yeah. and right. async programming uh, ends up being the death of us. 
you know, this is actually why I mark all of my functions as throws, even if they don't throw, because they might throw in the future. So you never know. And that's Jesse for you, always throwing shade. <laughs> Another big goal for the end state for all this concurrency work is um, to provide a standard set of language tools and techniques that Swift developers can follow. And um, I think this will definitely be helpful um, in, in accomplishing this goal. Um, Today, you have a number of different ways that you can uh, structure asynchronous code. Um, you have you know, competing reactive extensions frameworks, things like RxSwift or Reactive Swift or Combine, mm -hmm. um, plus a number of others that are not necessarily as mainstream. Uh, but you can also have completion closure based um, asynchrony. You can have... Um, Callbacks, yeah, yeah, yeah. Delegate-based uh, asynchrony, exactly. Um, so, it's similar to what Throws did with a standardized error model. It's not that there weren't other ways to still do things. It's that it provided sort of a common path um, uh, foundation for for people to use and and to look at first. Uh, so that you don't need to be pulling in something, some third-party dependency or uh, some um, module that isn't available on all of the platforms where the language is supported, like Combine, uh, to, to get some of that work done. It's actually portable, built into the language. Right. And I think one of the major benefits over um, these various other solutions and uh these third-party FRP frameworks or even combine is that um, you will get compile time uh, checks and warnings and errors um, with this solution, um, which you can't get currently. Yeah. Now, I don't think that combined types or, or these other uh, or reactive frameworks are, are really going away anytime soon. Um, they compose in a way that is going to be really hard to have direct equivalence on the language syntax side of things. Um, so if you've ever worked with reactive extensions, there's this set of operators, which are operations that you can perform on these asynchronous values or streams of values, things like um, throttle, debounce, um, race, uh, ways that you can combine um, these either sequences or, or async producers. Um, and some of that does have direct corollaries on the language side, but not all of, not all of it does. Um, and similar to how you still have some holdouts, if you will, of people who still um, use result-based error handling for everything, mm -hmm. um, you'll probably still have, I, I'd suspect, a much even an even stronger contingent of people who still stick with more of the reactive extension style, um, even in this world. And, and you'll probably see some opportunities for, um, uh, for synergy, <laughs> for them to play well together, right, and overlap. Right. Um, but I, I, I don't think that this whole concurrency roadmap means the death of reactive extensions at all. Right. And I'm not as familiar with a lot of um, these FRP frameworks, but um, 
could they be rewritten such that the like the underlying functionality is uh, is based on async await and actors, and you still have um, essentially like the same public API, but they now utilize this new feature? Um, there will definitely be some area of opportunity for interop um, and some evolution of the API design for uh, a Swift-centric um, reactive extensions framework. But it's I think it's important to keep in mind that um, the concurrency roadmap doesn't have anywhere outlined a new sort of concurrency um, engine uh, that would replace, say, uh, dispatch, Grand Central Dispatch. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it really is sort of a set of tools on top of however people are already doing asynchron, uh, asynchronous operations. Um, so what actually like handles things like thread pooling or sw- switching across threads or queues, I'm not sure it necessarily introduces a new mechanism for that. Um, actors might might do some of that, um, but you're not really just going to be able to replace, say, how RxSwift, for example, takes in a queue and um, replace that implementation away from Grand Central Dispatch and replace it with an actor or something. You, you might have a new set of types and APIs or refinements in those reactive frameworks that interoperate better with these concurrency um, primitives. Right. So an actor would protect against these data races and an actor is isolated to, I guess, its own thread or queue. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, I it took me a while to understand what the safety um, mechanisms that actors bring or like what, what benefits they actually bring. Right. Um, I was at first, I was sort of going into this with the false assumption. I think false assumption. I haven't, you know, validated this with, with an expert, um, but with a false assumption that somehow, you know, the compiler would, um, would stop you if you tried to access uh, a value from the wrong thread or yeah. something like that, which is actually somewhat true. Um, but really, it's it seems a lot more, it, it seems a lot simpler than that, where um, actors, uh, I think I've seen this mentioned, I, I think this is actually a, um, the, the quote comes from, from elsewhere in, in the prior art, but um, actors are islands of serialization in a sea of concurrency, I think is I the, the term, right? So it's really a, a compile time way to guarantee that an actor only does work um, on a given queue. And right. it doesn't even have to be backed by a queue or a thread. It, it's, uh, I think it, they refer to it as uh, tasks. Um, I'm probably mixing up some terminology here, but it, they they really enforce that um, you can sort of get things that are copyable or movable from any various threads, and those are all of its async APIs. But whatever internal state that it 
can mutate, um, that has to be done uh, synchronously. Um, and I think that's really the, the key there is that an actor, mm -hmm. like there's, we're, we're not we're not introducing this magical new concept that like removes all races from existing code. It's right. really sort of putting in constraints to design out um, any of those possible data races. And, and this is actually going to be down the line and all of the building blocks that you need to get to that full safety uh, of eliminating data races and deadlocks won't exactly come in this first phase. It'll come in a second phase that we haven't even fully seen what those pitches are going to look like. Right. So that's where the actor isolation comes in, where there is um, exclusive access to memory, which is kind of building on Swift's existing memory safety. Yeah, and that's where you'll probably start to see more sort of ownership annotations and movable types versus copyable types. Right. Yeah, so in the example provided in the roadmap, um, there's sort of the the existing way to do things where you may define some class that has an internal dispatch queue and you do work on that queue. And in this new world with actors, you no longer have to define that queue, but what's unclear to me is where, like, where does that queue go? What mm. happens at runtime? Right. Um, so I think this is where the underlying dispatch or serialization mechanism may be a queue, or it may be a thread, or it may be um, something else, and that'll that'll sort of be embedded in the API contract of an actor where you just say that um, whatever the actor does internally through its synchronous methods is going to be um, synchronized on that, on that internal queue, for example. So you, you don't explicitly right. annotate it. You just know that because those synchronous methods on the actor can only be called from the actor itself, you know you have that safety. Right, right. Thinking of that, I mean, that is an incredibly nice convenience um, when trying to write code like this, because uh, it's quite easy to forget to dispatch certain work to some internal queue. Um, and if this totally eliminates that, um, that would be uh, very nice. Yeah, now a lot of these goals sort of split out into um, their their component phases and each of these, uh, or, or rather sub-proposals of a first phase. Um, and to enumerate them here, there is the async await proposal, which um, really adds the uh, syntax that you need that you can then start to compose with these other proposals. And mm -hmm. this is the syntax that will enable things like the um, ob Objective-C interoperability, where you're converting completion handler functions to uh, functions that are marked as async. Uh, but it's really the jumping off point for every other proposal. All the other proposals sort of pre-assume some sort of linguistic structure where you can annotate uh, things that are async and things that uh, wait for async things. And there's a really helpful um, graph diagram that Doug Greger 
uh, drew up that we'll link to in the show notes that describes the dependency tree for all of these concurrency proposals. And mm-hmm. async await is really at the root of that. And you need to build on that to then get to actors. You need to build on async await to get to structured concurrency, um, uh, async sequences. It, everything else stems from that. Even actors then uh, power things like async handlers, which is a way to port over things like a delegate-based delegate, delegate based, um callback mechanism, global mm-hmm. actors like the main thread uh, and Objective-C interop. Yeah, I think that diagram is very helpful to um, understanding how these pieces fit together. Um, so async await this phase essentially replaces the uh, completion block type of syntax. That's right. And this alone should be you know, uh, sufficient to do things like getting rid of your uh, pyramid of dooms where you have callback nested and callback nested and callback. Right, right. Sign me up for that. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were all about that doom. (laughs) So the next step in this first phase after async await um, is introducing a task API and structured concurrency, which introduces the concept of a task to the standard library. Um, So that will include APIs to create detached tasks and groups of tasks, um, mechanisms for canceling and prioritizing them, and so on. And so this, um, I'm not sure if there's an example provided. Well, at a high level, what this enables uh, you to do is if you have several uh, async calls in a function, the compiler can then create distinct groups of those tasks, and they don't have to be contiguous. Uh, They just have to be based off of their dependencies. So if you make an async call to get A, and then you need the result of A to then pass it to an async call of B, then they're in the same group. They need to happen sequentially. Um, But if later on you also need this other async thing called C um, and another completely unrelated thing called D, and then you compose all four of those things at the very end, then you end up with three groups because you can have three set of tasks that can run in parallel um, that the compiler can then optimize. So instead of having to call one, and then waiting for it to come back, and then having to call the other one, waiting for it, third one, fourth one, etc. The compiler can be smart about knowing which ones it can run in parallel and choosing to kick off sort of as much of it as it can eagerly before just popping out. Right. Um, yeah. And so there is an example here in the uh, structured concurrency thread that John McCall started and the resulting code is actually really nice and easy to understand you just you'd have these multiple await calls and then get the results from those and then continue on um, with whatever additional work needs to be done there's also um, a call out here for detached tasks which you might not want to um, have all of the tasks um, sort of be wait until they all complete or error out before um, 
exiting the lifetime of the scope that, that's calling it, right? So you can think of certain fire and forget type of tasks or operations where say you're making um, an analytics call to an API saying like the user did X. Um, well, you might not want to wait for that API call to come back and to say that it was successful before you can continue on with the rest of what your program's doing. You might just want to do a fire and forget. And I think that's where there's a specific syntax and it's an API. Um, and the, the proposed API here is a task.runDetached um, call that then anything that's async in there, um, you can, uh, it, it, it's not tied to the lifetime of whatever that context is, whatever that scope is. Mm -hmm. The third proposal in this first phase is the one for actors and actor isolation. And actors is what we talked about a little bit earlier, providing this island of serialization and a sea of concurrency. Um, and it's a mechanism that will, down the line, um, be able to eliminate data races and um, data races and deadlocks. So you can think of uh, the main thread on Apple platforms when you're doing UI work as uh, an actor because it requires that everything happen on that main thread. Um, right. But what's nice about the actor model is that it will actually be enforced at compile time through this UI actor. It might even provide some nice optimizations and improve performance down the line if, if uh, internally the compiler can sort of um, determine what part of that actor needs to happen on the main thread versus what parts don't. Um, so that it, it may not even be blocking the main thread, even though it, it's required to be um, called from that actor. That's interesting. Yeah, one of the things mentioned in this thread is um, uh, this thread on the forums um, is introducing partial actor isolation first and then leaving full isolation enforcement um, to come later. Uh, but there is some debate over whether that is actually a good idea because you would end up um, breaking a lot of code in that second um, phase. Well, I think that might be part of the motivation for um, calling out this future direction so that people keep this in mind. But I, I agree that there there's a potential here for uh, significant breaking changes. Um, I'm wondering though, if those breaking changes are, or would happen to some extent anyway, even if uh, we did for force sort of an extra long combined single phase approach to getting mm -hmm. all of these things done um, in the sense that you need a number of other things. You need uh, ownership annotations in a much more concrete way than has ever really been pitched so far or is available. Uh, even internally um, in the Swift standard library. So, you know, given that there are uh, some short-term benefits to be had with the parts that are in the first phase, and mm -hmm. it is relatively speaking less effort <laughs> and therefore could probably be done in a more reasonable time frame. to me, it makes sense um, to, to have that trade-off because otherwise, you know, you'll have people with 
pitchforks being like, why is it taking so long? Right, um, right. Where you can actually have some, like the, the majority of uh, the advantages over existing systems with a relatively small subset of all of this work. Right. Yeah, there's certainly a trade-off there. Um, I don't really feel, I guess, necessarily informed enough to make a judgment on which would be better, but um, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that develops over the next uh, few months or so. Uh, the next step in this phase one is um, concurrency interoperability with Objective C, um, which is actually a, a little surprising to me in some ways, but this would introduce automated bridging between Swift's concurrency features, um, so like async functions, and the current convention-based um, expression of asynchronous functions in Objective C, uh, namely completion blocks. And so with this, you'd be able to use Objective C APIs immediately um, within Swift's uh, concurrency model. So this would be similar to how error handling uh, currently works, where Objective C APIs that take an error pointer uh, become throwing in Swift. Why are you surprised that uh, that this is being done? You mentioned that you yeah. were surprised. I guess it seems like it's more complicated. Um, perhaps not async await necessarily. I can see how that can bridge, um, but bridging over actors and things. I don't know. It just seems like a lot of complicated work. Uh, and maybe it's not. Yeah. Um, there's definitely <laughs> like most objective C and cross language interop, uh, things and parts of Swift. It, uh, it tries to hide a lot of complexity to make the user's life that maybe is not following <laughs> all of the <laughs> Swift development news. Um, a lot simpler so that right. all of the thousands of existing Apple platform APIs that iOS developers are targeting, um, that they all benefit from this uh, from day one. And, you know, I think that's why Apple goes through such great lengths to try to um, have a good story when it comes to this interop, even now, uh, six years after mm -hmm. uh, Swift was announced uh, right. or, or came out even. It's been five years since it's been open source, which has been awesome. Um, so yeah, that's there's a lot of complexity in the way that this will work internally, but I think the idea is to try to shove all that complexity under the carpet so that um, it looks nice and clean. Right. I wonder um, how long or if ever we will see things, um, see features like this in Swift that explicitly omit interoperation with Objective-C. It seems like that will be pretty far out. Yeah, I mean, how long do you think it'll take for Apple to convert most of its public APIs to Swift? What? Right, well, <clears throat> we've seen how Swift UI is going compared to UIKit, so. Uh, it might take a while. <laughs> yeah, it would. Um, 
you know, I, I think you're not really going to see that unless you have um, some amount of like machine translation uh, of rewriting um, Objective-C to Swift, but sort of feels like that's not going to happen. Right. Although we are seeing um, more Swift-only frameworks now um, each year. So I think uh, WidgetKit on iOS. Uh, oh, and I guess macOS has widgets now. Um, that was all a Swift framework. You have yeah, to use combined. Swift to use it. Yeah, and combined. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think a more likely scenario, and even then, um, not too sure how likely that is, but that's to have, you know, sort of a Swift wrapping layer in a bunch of frameworks that are at least being actively worked on, uh, as opposed to this API notes layer, um, which is sort of just a thin layer that hints as to how um, API should be uh, should should be rewritten. Uh, rather than actually changing right. the implementation, but that has the limitation of, well, you're still not using Swift in the framework itself. So I think moving forward, you're probably going to see frameworks start to have a little bit more of a mix and probably have um, like a, a uniform API area. Right, right. There's one other part of the first phase that we haven't touched on, which is this concept of an async handler, uh, which I don't really think think that this has a whole lot of prior art when it comes to other modern programming languages that have async await style uh, syntax because this is this is really um, seems to be really there to support the delegate callback pattern that is so common in uh, Apple APIs. Um, so for example, UI table view delegate, uh, you have all of these sort of notification methods uh, that perform async operations without necessarily, you know, being um, directly triggered programmatically from code that you own, right? Could be user events. Um, so there's this concept of having async handlers and there's, there's a Swift annotation for this at async handler. Um, and the idea there is to have a little bit more of an, um, a composability story with other async calls uh, with these async handlers. I'm assuming this would also apply to um, UI controls as well. So if you have like a UI button um, and you want to add a tap handler to that, this could also work? Uh, yes, um, I, I think so. I'm not sure I've actually seen too many examples of what exactly this would look like. We'll leave that as an exercise to the listener to <laughs> see if they can look that up. So one other part of this entire story um, is whether or not actors should be classes. Um, and Chris Lettner um, posted on the forums and wrote this, um, this Google Doc um, sort of explaining this this whole situation. So actors are reference types. We know that, but do they need to be classes is the question. Um, some of these issues are, do actors need method overriding? Do they need uh, up and down casting? Uh, do they need class members? Um, what if they're final? What about subclassing? There are all these things that come with classes that, um, 
make the actor model uh, more complicated. And that is what he explores in this doc. Um, do they need to be classes? My intuition says uh, probably not. It seems much simpler to uh, omit subclassing from uh, this entire discussion, but yeah, I, I you know I guess there there are also arguments for it. Um, you know, I guess it's familiar, maybe expected by the user to be able to subclass actors, um, code reuse, etc. Um, I'm not sure what other benefits there might be. Well, it seems unlikely to me that it won't be a class, at least at the runtime level, because of the stated goals for it to be interoperable with Objective-C. And that's probably a very strong design goal. Um, and to have it be represented in Objective-C, it, it'll need to be a class um, to hook into the Objective-C runtime. Um, but the question of... I, you know, what does it look like, uh, especially when you're using it from Swift? I think that will definitely be up in the air as to whether or not you should be able to subclass it. And that, I think, is mostly the, the, the main point of contention here is should these be subclassable or not? Um, and, you know, I, I think that the arguments for subclassing are few, especially, you know, arguments that um, uh, you, you literally can't do the same thing without subclassing it, uh, because you can always have a reference to an actual subclassable class or, or the subclass of a class in an actor uh, internally to sort of delegate some of that work to it. Um, that's not even counting, you know, all of the other comp compositional based ways to to inherit um, common functionality that would also be available to this. So I don't really see a strong argument for it to be subclassable. Uh, and therefore, if it doesn't really look like a class in the ways that the, the class keyword currently um, operates, then maybe you just omit the class keyword altogether and just call it an actor. Right, right. Yeah, it could be... We could think of it perhaps as a final class implicitly, but yeah, it does um, leave the question open about how this works with Objective-C. Yeah, and I think that the discussion around this sort of came out of um, a pitch that, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because the all of these proposals sort of landed late October, and I think it wasn't even a few days later that Chris Latner like comes in like the Kool-Aid man's like, what about protocols? What if we had protocol-based actor isolation? And um, seems to sort of be providing a, a completely alternate direction for actor isolation, for, for the direction that that could go in. Um, and there's definitely a lot to, to like. And, and I actually want to focus on one subcomponent of this pitch which is um, identifying which things were safe to pass to an actor. So this uh, that requirement sort of influenced the design of an actor sendable protocol. So if you were to annotate something with actor sendable, that means that you can pass that thing 
to uh, an actor and guarantee um, you as the user, you know, you're guaranteeing to the language that um, the actor should be safe to do whatever it wants with that. It won't get mutated under under from under it, mm-hmm. and that that um, that has the interesting uh, property of having um, val- value types or, or types with value semantics. I should say should implicitly conform to actor sendable because um, if you're going to mutate it, you're you're going to create a copy of it. Um, and, and you're not going to expose that uh, shared, unprotected, mutable state. And so what came out of this was the potential to have a uh, value semantic protocol, which would be pretty helpful in a lot of cases. And we actually almost have the opposite of that today, where you can have um, you can have a protocol that uh, is constrained to a class. Uh, but you don't really have the equivalent for value types. Um, and this, I think, is sort of being spun out into its own proposal. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so what would happen if you have a type with value semantics that owns types with reference semantics? That should be fine because really you're just operating sort of on that outer layer. Um, and if if the internal reference semantics um, storage, whatever, is exposed, then your type doesn't have value semantics. Right, right. So it's only if it's internal and you do all the things that you need to do to do things like copy on write, um, where from a consumer's point of view, you guarantee those value semantics. And that's why this isn't a, um, this isn't a struct versus class kind of debate, it's a semantics debate. Exactly. Okay. Or guarantee, yeah. I should say. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So some interesting promise there. Uh, and since this initial drop of proposals, there's also been one uh, from Philip Hausler and Tony Parker from the uh, CoreLibs Foundation team um, that are pitching the concept of an async sequence, which is seems really similar to like a combined publisher type uh, or an RX Swift observable type where you have a um, an asynchronous sequence of values where you can get each element um, at a different point in time as opposed to asynchronously getting the full end-to-end sequence. Um, so this would enable some some useful uh, patterns and would enable more language support for the kinds of things like an like a combined publisher. But you could do things like if you're if you're reading user input as lines on a terminal, you can get each line sort of as its own async value that you're just pop popping off of this async sequence. Yeah, the, the like practical use cases for this are a bit elusive to me. Um, because I feel like most of the time you want to uh, read or process sequences in order. Um, which you would, right? So the fact that you're getting each element out of a sequence asynchronously does not mean that you're not getting them in order. I see. It I just see. means that um, you're not necessarily blocking the underlying thread on which you do the work with that item. I see. Okay. 
So really, you know, anytime you have an, as an asynchronous stream of values, you could use this async sequence. Um, so for example, if you're handling taps on a button or uh, gestures that are drawn on the screen, right? You could um, you could asynchronously wait for all of those and do something every every time one of those comes in. Right, right. Okay, well, I think we will end the discussion there. Um, there's still a ton to cover, and we'll put all the links in the show notes so you can check out uh, these different posts on the forums and the documents that they link to. Uh, thanks again to AWS Amplify. Uh, you can check them out at awsamplify.info slash iOS. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, you can find us on Twitter uh, at Swift underscore Unwrapped. And uh, thank you for listening. <laughs>